everybody. Welcome back to Chronicles of Curiosity. My name is Mason, and I'm joined by my partner, Katie. And today we'll be examining the odd religious group cult, I put in parentheses with a question mark, that is the 12 tribes. But before that, mm. is there anything else you've been curious about this week? Do you know what? Actually, this one's a little bit left field. I've been kind of curious about candle making. Okay. I find it so interesting. I mean, it's really satisfying to watch, but... Um, like the process of how they like create a scent and all of it. It's so interesting to me. I like it. It's really cool. I'm familiar with how like candles are made like with wax and poured yeah. and shaped and stuff with the wicks, but how do they do they use just like essential oils for the the scent? I said I'm curious about it. I'm not an expert. I'm oh, really okay. don't, I'm not okay. really sure. I'm sure we can ask around, but yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you seen those videos where they're um it's like supposed to be a really one of those satisfying videos where they scrape off the dried wax off of the like wax pots yeah i've seen that i love that shit i've also seen where they take wax uh something like wax sheets or cubes or whatnot and they crumble them in their hands mm -hmm. that was like it sounds so nice so crispy yeah yep that was the height of instagram um videos like the reels or whatever they're called when that and the soap the Remember soap the too soap? Oh, I loved the soap videos where they would like score them. Yeah. So it had like little squares or little diamonds on it, and then they would just like scrape them off. So it had that really satisfying sound of them hitting whatever table or something. Mm -hmm. Ooh, love that. I really like that. And I also really like the ones that had a little like prize or something. Not a prize, but like a little figurine or something on the inside of the soap. Sometimes the soap oh. would be like clear and you would be able to see through it. And yes. other times it would be a surprise when you cut through it. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the little things. It's the little things. Yeah. Yep. Have that, you ever? That's the equivalent of um, like a toy inside a cereal box. Yeah, exactly. That's mm -hmm. the adult equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like Kinder Bueno eggs, and oh that also goodness. scratches that. Itch. <laughs> Same itch. That yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're so good. Nobody buys me toys anymore, so I got to get them for myself, disguised as candy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the good news is my mom also knows that you like Kinder Bueno eggs, and Easter is in a couple days. And she still gets us Easter baskets. So if you're picking up what I'm putting down here. I think I can figure okay, it out. Okay, yeah. good, good, yeah. good, good. Then I got some good news for you, buddy. Excellent. <laughs> How about you? Anything you've been curious about this week? Uh, yeah, I mean, so to, to again, to give a little bit of uh, insight into what topic we're covering today, I'm, I'm covering the first cult. The first? Well, not the first cult, the first cult that we've ever done on the show. Got it. I was like, so dang, wow. Beyond watching, like... Uh, you know documentaries on cults and listening to other podcasts and other media um, this is the first time I've done like my own deep research mm. and it's really fascinating because there's a lot of stuff that those types of documentaries leave out about the, the inner workings of the cult and a lot of stuff that I had to cut out from this series too unfortunately but just for time's sake but mm -hmm. um, yeah a lot of interesting things that go on within a cult a lot of interesting stuff about the beginnings of a cult and kind of how a cult would ramp up from a group that meets together to mm -hmm. a, something that we would classify as like religious extremists mm -hmm. yeah um and all the similarities that fall between different cults as well mm, it's unreal that's interesting. how many like parallels there are mm -hmm. to every just about every cult that you can think of with a few exceptions all fall under the same general classification of like how they got started mm. how it ramped up and depending on the motive of the leader or leaders, how it ends, too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So are you saying that you've been curious about just cults in general as a concept? Yeah. Um, obviously, this week and next week, I'm, I'm covering a specific cult, the 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. 
And this will be a this will be a two parter. This will be a two parter. Yeah, this okay. is the first part of uh, two. I was gonna try and fit it in one episode, but there was just a little bit too much mm. to, to to cram in here. So I, I figured I'd spread it out a little bit and really give it its its time in the spotlight here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had I never heard of the that. twelve tribes before doing this series. Had you? Mm, I don't think so. I did, I, and I don't want to spoil anything for for a little bit later here, but. I, I was aware of one facet of this particular cult, the 12 tribes, but I didn't know it was connected to this group. Okay. And I'll, I'll get into that in a second. I'll be less cryptic about it. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's just jump right into it here. Yeah. 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 Why I'm wait? Interested. Why wait? I've been waiting a whole week, so why wait any longer? <laughs> so the 12 tribes is a religious group founded by Albert Eugene Spriggs Jr. in the 1970s. Mm. Members of the group live together in intentional communities sharing all aspects of their lives and engaging in self-sufficient practices such as farming and woodworking. And intentional communities means exactly what it sounds. It's a group of people living together. On purpose. On purpose, with Mm. the intent of sharing goods, sharing resources. Okay, cool. I vibe with that. It's not like a town where if you move there, you happen to be part of a community. This Mm. is a very specific intentional community that they build for specific reasons. Okay. The group believes they are the true Israelites of the Bible and place a strong emphasis on family and raising children, according to their religious beliefs. Now, as you can imagine, any group that places themselves in an elevated position, uh, whether in the eyes of their deity or in the eyes of their peers, are naturally more inclined to use measures that we would deem immoral or inhuman. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you think you're important, you don't have the same level of respect that someone with more theological humility Mm, okay like respect for other people is that what you mean yeah yeah if you believe you're better or more important or elevated in any regard especially in you know in that sort of in that sort of aspect chances are generally you'll treat people with less respect because by definition they are less important okay generally i follow not always the case of course but generally Got it. So, of course, we will get into the controversies and conspiracies surrounding the group, but first we need just to get a little bit more background here on how the religious organization came to be. This is what has been interesting interesting me all week, mm-hmm. is uh, just like how something like this can get started and how it can go from something relative, relatively benign to uh, what we'll get into here um, with child abuse and other allegations oh, no. within the group, but that's for later. So... Gene Spriggs, the founder, would later become known as Yannick to his congregation, but for the purpose of this episode, we'll just be calling him Gene. Okay. Was it a white man? Yes. Got it. Gene was born uh, one of four children on May 18th, 1937, in a town near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, He was born to devout combination Methodist slash Baptist parents named Emma and Albert Spriggs. As a young man, Gene would enlist in the U.S. Air Force, where he would serve for several years before being discharged for mental health concerns. Mm. And remember, this would be the 1950s. Mm. So mental health concerns, discharge for that reason, would have had to be a pretty good reason yeah. compared to now, yeah. where we take that sort of thing more serious. Right, right. Uh, the rest of his early years would be marked by general turmoil and unrest. After returning home from the military, he would hold a series of odd jobs, including working at an auto mechanic shop, um, later working as a construction worker, just odd jobs around the community. Um, while I couldn't find specifics such as like names or dates, we do know that Gene was married twice in his early life. 
and both ended in messy divorces. Mm, So he couldn't necessarily hold a job. He was discharged from the military. He's had two wives before he was 30. Oof, rough start. Yeah, it's, it's a rough start. You can obviously tell there's some issues here. Yeah. So possibly understanding that his job prospects would not improve without a degree. Gene enrolled in a local university. However, due to additional issues, possibly mental issues, mental health issues, he would not complete his degree and eventually dropped out with no accreditation. Uh, Life in the 1960s would not lead to much improvement for Gene. Uh, He continued to struggle finding his sense of purpose and meaning. And at this point, he would have been in sometime in his 20s, mid-20s. Uh, so, of course, we can relate to that, yep. struggling to find purpose and meaning, Oof. especially at this time in our lives and this time in Gene's life back yeah. in, the, in the 60s. Yep. So at this time in the 20th century, Gene would also experience the growing hippie movement in the United States. And while we have very little information on this period of his life, it wouldn't necessarily be a stretch to assume he involved himself in the movement, mm-hmm. in the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. It was also during this time that Gene would become, quote, significantly disillusioned with Christianity. Again, he was raised by Methodist Baptist parents, devout okay. Methodist Baptist parents. Um, he had found himself on both sides of the coin being raised by these fervent Christian parents, as well as being fully engulfed in the free love movement of the 60s, kind of mm-hmm. two very opposing sides of, of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this decade, the 60s, would be marked by more difficulties and hardships for Gene, um, with some going as far to say as he was experiencing a serious identity crisis to the point of neurodivergence or Mm. even total breakdown. Oh, gosh. He was having a hard time. Yeah. However, in 1970, at age 33, Gene would report experiencing a life-changing revelation. Gene has never publicly stated what this experience was, but he would later hint that the experience involved a profound and personal connection to God and a profound sense of meaning, meaning and purpose in his life. All right. And like I said, he's never given specifics on what this experience was, so it's all up to conjecture. Um, he was telling the truth in that he really believed he had an experience with a God or God. Was he having a mental breakdown? Was it a drug-induced trip of the 1960s? Yeah. Was this tr- was this all true? Was he really telling the truth? Mm-hmm. We just um, don't know. Yeah, that's something that you have to kind of decide for yourself here. Okay, all right. I personally lean into the drug-induced experience, uh, but that's just my perception of the time period mm-hmm. and where he probably was at this point of his, of his life. I, th- I, I really feel deeply that that was the most likely case, mm-hmm. but we don't know for sure. Okay. Regardless, um, it was after this life-altering experience that Gene Spriggs would rededicate his life for Christ, repenting all of his prior perceived sinfulness. He would also begin believing to some extent that the turmoil in his life was a result of God punishing him, a common belief among Christian communities. It was also at this point in his life in the late 60s that a mutual friend would introduce Gene to his eventual third and final wife. All right. Marsha Ann Duvall. So Marsha was born in the 1940s in California, also to religious parents. Um, unfortunately, we don't know much else about her early life. But for the sake of our story here, all we really need to know about her is that Jean met her at a critical point in his life. Okay. Both had similar religious backgrounds, and both 
very strongly wanted to make something of their lives, having both struggled with self-purpose. Okay. So they're really, they're really, at this point in their early 30s, they really wanted to nail down their self-identity, find a purpose in life. I feel like that's a good time for them to find each other, you know? Definitely. In the same kind of headspace. Yeah. For most people, that would be the perfect time to find somebody like that. Yeah. Um, But for potential cult leaders, finding each other in that situation, um, we'll get into it. In 1972, two very important steps would take place in the founding of what would eventually be known as the Twelve Tribes. The first event was that Jean and Marsha would get married, and the second is that they would move to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga. Chattanooga. It was here in Chattanooga that the couple would begin a low-key religious movement for local teenagers called the Light Brigade. You might have heard of them. No. Some people might have heard of them. (laughs) Um, Getting swept up in the Jesus movement and anti-hippie rhetoric of the early 70s, the Light Brigade began growing from a few students to a large community of young Christians. They would meet at Jean and Marsha's home in Chattanooga, and uh, Jean and Marsha eventually opened a coffee shop called The Lighthouse. And they would serve just anybody. It wasn't a front for anything at this point. It was not nefarious in any way, shape, or form. Uh, They allowed teens to meet at their house, and they would hold Bible studies and sing songs, and it was all very, very benign. Okay, all right. It was also at this point of expansive growth sometime around late late 1972 or early 1973 that they would expand their coffee shop and also open a small restaurant called the Yellow Deli. All right. Some of you may have heard of this as well. I was aware of the Yellow Deli. Yeah. But I was not aware that it had any connection to this group. Okay, some some dots are starting to connect up in my brain here. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, also uh, as a side note, I thought maybe they chose this name because of the song Yellow Submarine by mm-hmm. the Beatles, mm-hmm. and also it's a deli and a submarine is also called a submarine, or excuse me, a sub is also called a submarine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that made perfect sense in my mind. Yes. Uh, it had nothing to do with that. All right. The actual reason is that the previous tenants of the building um, was owned, they ran another restaurant that was called the Yellow Jacket, and they wanted to keep part of the sign. All right. Probably to save some money. It. I respect it. Yeah, honestly. you know, yeah. you know, yeah. Re- reuse, recycle, whatever. That's right. That's right. Um, so at this point in the story, we're a couple of years into this movement, and the movement was yet to have been named. So they were growing in numbers. There were other individuals joining besides just young Christian students. Um, there were young adults. There were older members as well joining okay. in, probably some parents too. So a good range of, of ages. Yes. And walks of life. Yes, and it was also during this point that the group would begin to radicalize a little bit. Uh-oh. Okay. So led by Jean and Marsha, the group began living communally as a way to pursue what they saw as a more authentic and meaningful way of life based on their specific interpretation of the Christian teachings. Okay. So according to the group's belief, the early Christian church practiced a communal lifestyle in which members shared all possessions and resources— and they sought to replicate this model in their own lives, hence living together. All right. The group's communal lifestyle was based on the principle called community of goods, in which members pooled their resources and shared everything in common, including housing, food, income, etc. Uh, this lifestyle was seen as a way to foster a song, strong sense of community and support among members, as well as a way to promote simplicity, humility, and spiritual growth. Okay. Again, not necessarily nefarious. But right. they are ramping up in terms of our cult meter 
so, yeah. So what we would Nobody what we spoke. so if if a Pizza Hut was a zero and Jonestown is a ten, mm-hmm. we're at like a four right now. Got it. So they just passed that li- communal living threshold. Right. Um. The uh, the the cult the cult sensor sensor is starting to starting to buzz a little bit yeah yeah i agree i agree um and but honestly at this point i i really wouldn't necessarily consider them so i wouldn't consider them a cult at this point in time yeah it's just some folks it's just some folks who like to live together and share everything and also have the exact same belief system and reject anyone who doesn't have that specific belief system so we're getting real close. We're inching toward like a six on the cult meter at this it's point a in time. Borderline, yeah. borderline situation here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the lifestyle of communal living was seen as a way to foster a strong sense of community and support among members, as well as well as a way to promote simplicity, humility, and spiritual growth. The group group also began emphasizing a rejection of mainstream culture and materialism. And they saw their communal lifestyle as a way to resist the pleasures and temptations of the world. At this time, members of the what was still known as the Light Brigade were attending various Christian churches in the Chattanooga area while still living communally. However, at some point, the group began attending the same church, First Presbyterian of Chattanooga. It's unclear why they decided to join the same church or who even suggested it. It might have been Gene, it might have been Marsha, it might have been someone completely different. Uh, but this single decision would allow for the creation of the cult that we now know as twelve tri- the 12 tribes. And it all has to do with the Super Bowl. What the hell? Let me explain. Please do. So on a Sunday in January of 1975... The members of the Light Brigade would arrive at First Presbyterian Church of Chattanooga to attend normal Sunday morning service. They found the doors shut and the lights were off. Uh, The church had closed down for the Super Bowl that day. And if anyone cares or is wondering, I did look it up, and that year's Super Bowl in 75 was between the Steelers and the Vikings. Hmm. Uh, It was played in New Orleans, and the Steelers won 16-6 to to claim their first Super Bowl victory. Good for them. Good for them. Anyway... Uh, The church was closed for Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, This outraged the members of the Light Brigade, who were significantly more fervent in their religious beliefs than the Christian community around them. Uh Uh-huh. The group used this outrage and turned it into motivation. After that day in 1975, they would, from the ground up, build a modern church-slash-cult hybrid that we now know as the Twelve Tribes, what they called themselves at the time was not the 12 tribes. They called themselves the Vine Christian Community Church. Okay. So they're taking on a normal-ish persona. Right. Sounds starting, harmless. Right. Founding a new church. Um, the group began holding large services in public spaces, which they called Critical Mass, which is a terrible name and a mm-hmm. terrible pun. Mm-hmm. And also, they have no Catholic beliefs. Mm. Um, they could have done better. I agree. In addition to holding these services, they would also baptize people in public around the city, mm-hmm. uh, which made the local religious communities kind of upset. Okay. So at this point, the public around Chattanooga largely knows that the group is living communal- communally. Uh, they know they're aggressively recruiting new members by using love bombing ta- techniques. Uh, and they also know that the church is being led by a charismatic man who claims divine right because of a vision or experience with God. 
Mm-hmm. Essentially, the community of Chattanooga, they were very quickly realize, realizing that they had a full-blown cult in their town. And it <laughs> was growing very quickly. Oh, boy. And uh, around what year was this? Do you know? Uh, this was 1975, um, between 1975 and 1978, I want to say. Okay. Between the mid-70s to the late 70s. It. So it was a couple years in between when they founded the Vine Christian Community Church and when they really started to ramp up and do public crusades and that sort of thing. Got it. And okay. the public really, it, the public took a little while to really catch on. It's okay. not too unexpected. Uh, they weren't overly large at this point, but they were a pretty good congregation. They're a pretty good group of people. Okay. Good size. Is that what you mean? Good size. Okay. Yeah. Um, they, uh, this realization from the Christian community and the community of Chattanooga uh, led two organizations to attack the Vine Christian Community Church. Um, the parents committee to free our children from the children of God and also the Citizens Freedom Foundation, two different organizations. Wait, can the first one, can you read the name of the first one again? The Parents Committee to Free Our Children from the Children of God. That is a long name. That's a long name, but when you break it out in your mind, you can kind of understand what they're getting at. Yes, but couldn't they have like shortened it or something? Yeah, they could have gone with an acronym, PCFOCF. T-C-O-G. Yeah, that doesn't work either. Yeah, or they could have just done like the simple, simple, like band name style, The Parents. Ooh, yeah, that's right? good. That's that goes so hard. It does. The it Parents. Does. And then only the people that know what it's about really know the full name. But for simplicity and speed, because it takes 20 freaking minutes to say the whole name. <laughs> that's why they couldn't the get parents. anywhere with this. They exactly. just were, they went to the city council and they took 45 minutes just explaining who they were. Exactly. And the, and the yeah. council members say were like. name three times and the whole meeting is done. Yeah, they were like, I don't know what you're doing here and our time is up, so you need to leave. Yeah, goodbye. Yep. So the, these two organizations would be the first to call the church a cult officially. Mm. They would also lead a deprogramming initiative in the attempt to save at least some of the members before things escalated even further. For anyone who isn't sure what deprogramming is, because I had no idea, it's any method that attempts to change the beliefs of someone who holds stronger convictions than what would be considered normal or acceptable. Okay. Most deprogramming is used in the context of making a cult member realize why, or excuse me, real, making a cult member realize what they may have believed may not be the truth. These attacks, though, from these two organizations would prove mostly useless, and the group continued to grow anyway. Okay. It was during this time that the church would begin to spread beyond their city of origin. At this point, they planted churches in Dalton and Trenton, Georgia, Matone, Alabama, and Dayton, Tennessee. So they got a pretty good-sized group at that point if they're able to plant multiple other yes. locations. Yes, and while the other locations were smaller, um, they were still able to spread out quite a lot. Yeah, wow. And all, these locations aren't particularly far from Chattanooga, Tennessee. They're, mm. it, it sounds like they are being in three separate states, right? but they're actually pretty close. Okay. I looked it up, and, and they're very... They're all within a very short distance of each other. Got it. Okay. Comparatively, at least for the United States. We're used to driving forever to get anywhere around here. Yeah, yeah. Um, each church would have their own yellow deli. That was a bit the, weird. Yeah, that was the foundation of each church was a yellow deli. They wouldn't have a church building the way that Western civilizations typically think of it. Mm-hmm. They would open a deli that would actually sell food and good food, from what Ooh. I from what I've heard. Okay. Um, but they mostly existed as a front to house cult members. Oh. So the deli themselves 
in a lot of ways was the communal house where the cult members would live. And we'll post pictures of the Yellow Deli as well. I'll post some pictures um, of the inside because uh, it doesn't look like a restaurant necessarily. Kind of looks like looks like a hybrid between somebody's house, um, like a diner, and like a community rec center. It's okay. it's hard to explain. That's so weird. In 1978, Gene Spriggs, still the leader of the group, was offered the position of minister at a small community church in Island Pond, Vermont, which okay. was an extremely remote and small town in the northern portion of the state. Gene would decline this offer. Uh, but for one reason or another, the cult members began moving to the small town in Vermont. Even though he had declined the offer? Even though he had declined the offer. Um, again, it's not necessarily clear why, but um, really fr- from what I read while doing the research here this week, um, a, lot of pe- a lot of people who have looked into this believe that maybe at this point they had kind of read the writing on the wall and knew that they were going to be run out of Chattanooga. Oh. At this point, the, the community was not happy um, with mm-hmm. them. Okay. For a lot of reasons, okay. as you can imagine. Um, and also, I wanted to mention, I couldn't find any information on why this tiny church in Vermont would extend an offer for minister. Yeah, to this random-ass Tennessee man. Yeah. Most likely, they had heard about the cult through word of mouth mm-hmm. or through newspapers. Okay. Um, and they probably saw how quickly the, excuse me, the church, mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point, mm-hmm. not not technically yeah. called, Um was growing and they probably said hey why don't we just ask that guy mm, you know, we'll he see. seems to be doing something correctly yeah exactly he seems to know what he's doing mm-hmm. so he declined but famous last words the cult members began moving anyway okay they would at this point they would set up a new church in island pond vermont uh, which they would call the northeast kingdom community church and again i'm not entirely sure why they were why they had moved there but they mm. did okay the relocation to Vermont combined with difficulty adjusting to the new surroundings uh, did prompt some members to leave the group and either return home to Tennessee or start their lives fresh elsewhere. Shortly after their arrival, the Citizens Freedom Foundation, the same organization that that they thought they left behind in Tennessee, they thought okay. they were in you know their rearview mirror, they thought they had taken care of them, mm-hmm. well, they organized meetings in Barton um, to raise awareness of the group. Barton. Barton, Vermont is just okay. a short drive from Island Pond. I looked up that as well. Okay. Island Pond is a very small town. Sounds like a one. Very, very small town. And from what I did while just kind of poking around on Google Maps, it looks like this this cult still pretty much runs the town, from what I can see. Present day. Present day, currently. Well, I'll um, be. There is a restaurant in the town that references the Northeast Kingdom Community Church. Okay. And it's not called the Yellow Deli, but it's very clearly directly tied to the church Hmm. still to this day. Wow, that's wild. So Citizens Freedom Foundation arrived, uh, raised awareness about the group. Um, Previously, the Citizens Freedom Foundation had made accusations of mind control against the cult while they were still in Chattanooga. But at this point, it shifted its focus to child abuse in the case. And mind control, um, just to go back to this quickly... In the context of a cult is the manipulative techniques by a cult leader or group to control the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of their followers. Uh, Mind control tactics may include the use of indoctrination, isolation from outside influences, sleep deprivation, psychological and and physiological abuse, love bombing, and other forms of psychological manipulation. That's just a direct 
definition from the internet. Okay, all right. But it really wraps up nicely what exactly what exactly this organization is concerned is going on within yeah. the call. Yeah, I feel like that covered a lot of a lot of information in one one, one neat blurb. tidy little package. Yeah. Uh, so Charles Eddie Wiseman, an elder within the cult, and that's all you really need to know about him, faced charges of misdemeanor simple assault in 1983, mm. brought on by the Citizens Freedom Foundation's prodding of the community. These charges, along with various other child custody disputes, led a search warrant to be issued. And on June 22, 1984, the Vermont State Police and Vermont Social Rehabilitation Services seized 112 children from the the cult. Oh. The majority of these cases were quickly dismissed due to the parents' refusal to provide the names of their children. Apparently, they had to drop it because reasons that I don't necessarily understand if I'm being honest. Okay. Essentially, the parents didn't want to take responsibility. The judges didn't know what to do with them at that point. I mean, you have this small-town judge who has 112 kids, which yeah, is what probably... what are you supposed to do with them? Right, right, exactly. What Are you, are you going to send them all to foster care? That is a very difficult... That's a lot of kids to yes. send them to foster, care, foster care. Yes, and especially when you consider the fact that a majority of them, if not you know, extreme majority of them were living unabused lives. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. they, de- they they were ne- not in any. They weren't in any direct, direct harm. Right, right. Okay. They weren't in any threat. They didn't have any threat of direct harm okay. at this point in time. Okay. Their parents just happened to be ex hippies who got caught up in this movement okay. and were so devout that they did, had decided to move from Tennessee to Vermont. Okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all the members at this time were abusing children. Right. Of course. Right. Of course. So after the majority of these cases were dismissed, the group realized that at this point they would have to start building connections with their neighbors. So in response to what they felt was a grave misinterpretation of the events and issues surrounding the raid, they decided to reach out um, and, again, start connecting with their community. They started holding local events, bringing community members into the church, um, trying to demystify them a little bit, I suppose, and showing them, hey, we're not as scary as, you know, these people make us out to be. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. And after two months, the case against Whitman, oh, excuse me, Wiseman, Charles Eddie Wiseman, um, the elder in the cult, unraveled. The church, you mean? The church, excuse me. <laughs> unraveled when the primary witness recanted, stating that he had been coerced by the anti-cult movement. Interesting. I this may that may very well be true. I personally hold the belief that it was not the anti it was not the the Citizens Freedom Foundation hmm. that coerced this indiv- young individual into admitting to ch- you know admitting to abuse upon him. Okay. I am strongly under the impression that he was threatened by members of the church to rescind his to statement. rescind what he said. I um, understand. <laughs> I have no proof for that, but I very strongly feel mm-hmm. that that's the case. Mm-hmm. A local judge ultimately dismissed the case in 1985, citing Wiseman's right to a speedy trial. At this point, the trial had been delayed for about a year or so, so the judge decided to drop it. Okay. Also, Wiseman's public defender in this case, her name was Jean Swanko. She had been present during the raid. She later joined the group and married Eddie Wiseman, which is a big, a big no-no in terms of public defense. Yeah, that's wild. Oh, my goodness. So I don't hold much credibility with Swanko's defense of Wiseman. 
yeah. in this specific case. Might have been a little bit skewed. Yes. And while the church did escape unscathed from this attack, it would be far from the last accusation they would be subject to. And next week, we're going to get into some of the twisted beliefs and practices of what would become one of the United States' most infamous cults. Mm. So we hope you'll join us next week for the conclusion of the cults of the 12 tribes. And I will say there is a lot of anti-Semitism and an uh, outrageous amount of racism next week. Oh, Lord. Okay. Just truly head-scratching racism. Okay. So join us for that. So while I was writing the script and doing research for this episode, um, I was really careful not necessarily to describe the group as a cult until later in their formation. So like most cults, this one did start as a group of individuals who were marginalized in some way. And for the most part, uh, we really haven't gotten into any of the nefarious aspects of this group. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking right now, this group, this cult doesn't sound so bad. Mm-hmm. What's the big deal? Um, just we'll, we'll get into it next week here. All right. I'm interested. Yes. They held some very, in, they hold some very intense beliefs. Hold? hold. They are still very much active, but we'll oh, get into that next week as well. Boy. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. 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 Um, <laughs> they held hold absolutely batshit crazy beliefs and not mm. just for their day and age but for any time period all right so good cliffhanger there yeah so from what you've heard so far would you classify this church as a cult yet not yet not yet you're gonna wait i'm gonna wait i think i am too i think at this point they are absolutely within their right to have moved mm-hmm. um they're absolutely they didn't force anybody to move that we know of mm-hmm. so they're that's no problem at all. Right. Um, the child abuse was strike number one. Mm-hmm. And next week we'll get into strike number uh, two through 300. Cool. All yes. right. Okay. Um, but before we go here, I'd like to mention our sources for this week. They'll probably be similar next week with some additions. Um, we have Prophets and Saviors, a compilation of firsthand accounts of the 12 tribes cult from those who left its clutches by Nori Muster, and I highly suggest that one. Mm, okay. Twelve Tribes, The Worldly Spirit and New Religions by Benjamin Zablowski. The Twelve Tribes, in parentheses, Vine Christian Community, Northeast Kingdom Community Church, and Messianic Communities by David Bromley. Cults in Our Midst, The Continuing Fight Against Their Hidden hidden Menace, which is a great name, by Margaret Thayer Singer. So all right. Thank you for all of our sources here. Um, and also thank you for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed, and we hope that you will uh, also tune in next week. Anything you have to add? No, no. I'm just I'm I'm lost in the sauce over here of this of this not cult. Um, I'm just processing, so I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so again, we appreciate the support. Um, one thing I did want to mention: we did turn on listener support on Spotify. So if you'd like to support the podcast, um, it would really help us out and really help, you know, continuing making this show. Um, the link is in the podcast description um, on Spotify specifically. Okay. So if you go to the Spotify episode description, you'll see the link there. It'll take you right to the right to the listener support section. Mm-hmm. Also, we're on Instagram as Chronicles of Curiosity Podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you enjoyed to share with friends and family. Um, and we would be forever grateful for it and we'll be forever indebted to you. No. Okay. But grateful, yes. <laughs> um, but also, I we would love to encourage you to um, feel free to interact with us on our social medias. I'm not going to lie to you. We don't check it as often as we should because life gets busy. We both work nine to five still. 
Um, but yeah, if you if you have anything interesting to say, have any specific content that you want us to talk about or to cover, um, shoot us a message, uh, leave a comment on one of our posts. Um, yeah, we would love to hear from you. Yeah, and that's going to be all from us this week. We are happy you listened, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.